Luke, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. And one of the reasons we're doing this is this is a season of Advent. And, you know, maybe I don't have to, but I guess around the season, I always feel obligated to, like, preach uh, something about Advent and something about Christmas. But we're also in a series on the Holy Spirit. So um, I thought, uh, you know, in Luke 1, it actually talks about people who were filled with the Holy Spirit, which is quite interesting because it's before Pentecost. But uh, John the Baptist in the womb uh, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then later on it says Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, his mother. And after that, uh, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit at the end of the chapter. Uh, we're not going to see all of that today. Uh, we'll see what it says about John uh, as the angel talks about how he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, but that's the reason we're going to look at this passage today. So if you look with me, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 to 25, this is the word of the Lord. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of God. This is the word of God. Uh, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you even for uh, testimonies which are, are a reflection of uh, your work in people's lives. Uh, your word and your spirit oftentimes uh, work together uh, for our good, for our, our growth, for our maturity, for our salvation, for joy, for life. And we pray that as we hear from you in this time, uh, that your spirit would bring life to this word, and that as we hear it, as we receive it, uh, your word would um, be light to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
You know, so this passage is uh, not about Jesus yet, but it's about what happens before the birth of Jesus. And this passage is about uh, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is kind of, he's an interesting figure to me, not simply in terms of his life, but really the role that he played in what God had planned for, uh, for his people of salvation. Now, you got to keep in mind, this is a period, right? There's been a period of about, let's say, 400 years where God has seemingly been silent in that there has been no prophetic word that has been raised up. You have the final, the last prophet in the Old Testament is Malachi, and uh, nothing, uh, well, not, I, would, I shouldn't say nothing happens, but uh, it doesn't seem like God is speaking to his people uh, for hundreds of years uh, until we get to this period here. Uh, this is like a little bit of light cracking open. And finally, it, it should be an exciting moment because it's like, wow, God has been silent, seemingly silent for so long. And now it seems like God is beginning to do something. There seems to be some movement. You know, Malachi is the last uh, book in the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, he, he is writing in a time where the people of Israel are not doing great. They have been exiled because of their idolatry, because of their sin. There was a, a short period of renewal that you read about in Ezra and Nehemiah, and they were rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the temple walls. But by the time you get to the end of the book of Nehemiah, uh, they backslid again, and things are not good again, and they've done uh, things that are wrong again. And so Malachi is addressing uh, people in this situation, and it's, it's not a great situation. The temple has been defiled because there's corrupt priests. In fact, God says in the most vivid language, he tells the priests, I am going to spread dung on your face. Things are that bad. Uh, the people of God, they've broken covenant and they have intermarried with uh, non-Jewish people, which uh, what ends up happening is that invites idol worship, the worship of foreign gods into the community of Israel. And so things are not good in terms of the situation Malachi is addressing. And a lot of the words that he speaks from God are words of judgment. But here's how Malachi ends at the end of chapter 4. It says this. It's a word of hope. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." and then silence, right? That's the last word in Malachi. Four, about 400 years later, now you have this angel speaking to Zechariah in this temple. And Zechariah is not like some high priest. He's just like a, a regular priest. They drew lots to determine who's going to do the temple service, who's going to do the incense, right, in the temple. And now you have this angel speaking to Zechariah and telling him something amazing. John the Baptist, he is supposed to be this fulfillment of this prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 where God says he would send Elijah the prophet. And if you look in verse 16 of this passage, after the angel says that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit, what does it say? And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." Did you, did you hear that? Did you hear the echoes from Malachi chapter 4 in what the angel is telling Zechariah about John the Baptist? Now, the people of Israel, they have been waiting for this moment. Why? Because the golden years under uh, the reign of King Solomon and uh, the, the kingdom of Israel is all but a distant memory. And now, this is a weakened people, and they have been under foreign empire, under foreign empire from the Babylonians, Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, 
And now in this New Testament period, they're now under the Roman Empire. And they're just waiting. When is God going to make Israel into a, a powerful political nation once again? That's what they're waiting for as they wait for the Messiah. And you see the birth of John the Baptist signals that God is about to do something. God is ready to do something special, and God has to prepare his people for the arrival of the Messianic King. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about the experience of waiting, but there's a lot of different kinds of emotions that one can have when you're waiting for something. Uh, I know it's the holiday season, the Christmas season. If you grew up celebrating Christmas and you grew up opening presents under a tree, then maybe you're just, you see the presents under a tree and you're a child, and you're like, I'm just waiting, I can't wait till Christmas comes so I can open up these presents. And uh, a child waiting for Christmas tells you that uh, they're really excited and that they really desire to see what's hidden under the wrapping paper and they really want to play with whatever toy is in that box. But there's also another kind of waiting that is filled with a lot of anxiety, right? Uh, I remember when my wife was pregnant with our first child, um, uh, they, they said that, uh, you know, this, uh, this child has some of the markers for Down syndrome, so they recommended to get some kind of test done to make sure that the baby wouldn't have Down syndrome. And uh, I actually wasn't very anxious, but my wife was really anxious about it. I thought it was going to be fine. And uh, so we, you know, she did the test, and we're just like, you know, we're waiting for the results. Like, how, how is the health of our, our first child? And that's, that's kind of an anxious waiting. And if you've had any kind of um, you know, medical issue and you're waiting for tests to come, then maybe you've had that kind of anxiety as well. There's another kind of, uh, anx there's another kind of waiting where maybe it's like hopeless waiting. Uh, maybe you are looking for a job. Maybe you're just out of college. Maybe you've been laid off and now you're looking for employment and uh, you've applied to hundreds, you sent your resumes to hundreds of companies. You've gone on maybe six or seven interviews and all of these interviews, they said, we'll get back to you, but none of them get back to you. You go on to your eighth interview and they say, we'll be in touch. And uh, you know, you're kind of like, well, yeah, we'll see, right? And you kind of don't believe that they're ever going to contact you, but you're kind of waiting with a sense of hopelessness. You, waiting takes place in many facets of our lives, and uh, wait, waiting is oftentimes associated with different kinds of emotions. But you know, the Bible also talks about waiting, and there is a certain kind of way in which we are supposed to wait when we wait with faith. And uh, I, I would even say that there is an expectation that uh, all believers or all people of God, even from the Old Testament, had to wait by association of promise. Anytime something is promised, that presupposes you have to wait, right? You have to wait for that promise to be fulfilled. And uh, God makes a promise to people like Abraham, and they just wait for that promise to be fulfilled. And some people, like Abraham, never get to see that promise fulfilled in the course of their lives. There's a psalm in the Bible that we use for our call to worship, Psalm 130. And uh, the reason I chose that psalm for our call to worship is because it talks about waiting. And the picture of waiting in Psalm 130 is that of watchmen waiting for the morning. It's a little bit like somebody standing guard, standing watch all night long. And you are just anticipating morning to come so that you can finally get some rest, so that you can finally get some sleep. And as long as that wait feels and as tired as you are during that period of waiting, there is still a sense of certainty that morning will come, right? There's an expectation that the sun will rise. 
the promises of God, the way we are supposed to wait in faith are a little bit like that, that we trust in God's promises and the way that he's going to fulfill those promises uh, with the same certainty as we believe the sun will rise and a new day will dawn. God will fulfill those promises and therefore the call to wait is to wait with a sense of faith, trust, and expectation. But imagine waiting 400 years, right? That's a long time. Imagine waiting 400 years and, uh, you know, you say maybe after a year, okay, maybe next year's the year, right? Maybe next year's the year that God's going to fulfill the promise. Nope, right? After five years, okay, maybe it's, it'll be next year. Maybe, maybe it'll be the next decade. Maybe it'll be the next century. It takes 400 years and then finally it brings us to this moment, to this announcement. And this announcement comes in the days of Herod to a priest named Zechariah. And the passage tells us a few things about Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Uh, first, Zechariah is a priest. And uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, it says, they were both righteous before God. They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments. And uh, I think that's important because it leads us to interpret and say, the fact that Elizabeth couldn't have a child, the fact that Elizabeth is barren, uh, is not supposed to indicate that she was cursed by God in some way or was displeasing to God in some way. Um, but they were a righteous people and they were trying to follow the ways of the Lord. Now, in the ancient world, the inability to bear a child, it, it has a lot of implications. And you know, if you know anybody in uh, this time who has struggled with pregnancy and struggled getting pregnant, you know, right, you know the emotional toll that that can have on a person. Uh, one of the difficulties, I think, with uh, not being able to have a child is uh, really the repetition of disappointment that you experience every month because the female menstrual cycle takes place every month. I've heard that it's almost like grieving a death, but you don't just grieve a death one time, but it's like grieving a death every single month. And after having many, 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 many years of that, that kind of experience, I would imagine, you know, it starts to wear on you and hopelessness and jadedness and cynicism begins to sink in and it kind of becomes a new norm in terms of one's outlook in life. Now, in the ancient world, it was like that, but I would say it was even worse because children represented financial security. It represent, they represented the future. There were no such things as like government subsidies or there was no such thing as IRAs or retirement accounts or anything of that nature. Your children were expected to support you in your old age. So to be without any children would have been a very serious thing for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, there are plenty of women in the Bible who actually shared this burden and couldn't bear children. But you also see that in these women in the Bible, God used barren women to bring about a child that had a special role in God's plan. Isaac was born of Sarah, who was advanced in years. Uh, Angel tells Sarah, you are going to have a son, and you know how Sarah responds? She laughs, right? Not like, a, oh, oh, great, right? She laughs with some, <laughs> right? how am I gonna have a child in this advanced age? Samson, uh, you know, I substitute uh, taught at um, my oldest daughter's school, and uh, uh, one of the teachers I was subbing for was a Bible teacher. So I was like, oh, perfect, right? I can sub for the Bible class. And they were reading the story of Samson, and they had to perform skits on the story of Samson. They missed the point because none of them uh, mentioned the, the fact that uh, Samson was born of a barren woman. But yes, I was reminded, Samson was born of a barren woman as well. Samuel? Where I get my name, born of Hannah. 
barren woman. There's all these other examples in the Bible that God has used the barrenness of women to bring forth a child with a particular purpose in his plan. Now, I thought about why would God do that? Why would God use the barrenness of a woman for his purposes? And I think, right, I, I think maybe it's because barrenness, whether it's associated with uh, uh, a woman's inability to bear a child, or barrenness, whether oftentimes associated with like the desert, inability to produce fruit in the land. Barrenness represents curse, represents death, represents hopelessness. And one of the ways, I think, in which we see God, uh, God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, God's power come together, where we see God bringing all of these things together, is actually from that place of barrenness. He brings hope from hopelessness. He brings encouragement from despair. He brings victory out of loss. And in the climax of the resurrection, he brings life out of death. Now, by the way, I think one of the distinctive elements of the Gospel of Luke is Luke emphasizes the weak. Luke emphasizes the poor. Luke emphasizes women. Luke emphasizes children. Uh, in other words, Luke is emphasizing the faith and highlighting people who are typically, at least in the ancient world, people from a disenfranchised position, people who don't get much attention, people who don't have much status in society, and Luke is highlighting them, saying they are examples of faith. And I think that's one of the things that the gospel shows us in terms of how God works. Now, if there has been a theme that has kept coming up throughout the series of the Holy Spirit, I think it is this, that God embraces the weak, that God uses weakness as a way to display his strength. And so how would God bring salvation after 400 years of silence? Well, he would prepare the way before Jesus and he would prepare the way through a barren woman. Now, I want to focus on a little bit on what the angel says about John the Baptist here. And when John the Baptist comes, the angel says in verse 14 that he is going to bring joy and gladness, and many are going to rejoice at his birth. Why are many going to rejoice at his birth? And you get your answer actually not in this passage, but at the end of chapter 1. Um, Zechariah is rebuked because he doesn't really believe the angel when he says you will have a son. So as a rebuke to Zechariah, he says, you will no longer be able to speak, right, until uh, the baby comes. That's about, what, nine months? That's a long time to not be able to speak. Uh, if you've ever, um, I don't know, if, if you've ever been in one of those arguments where it just kind of seems to go back and forth and back and forth and it kind of goes in circles without finding a resolution, uh, I think one of the frustrations is like you're like, hey, the other person can't hear me, right? The other person's not really paying attention. The other person's not really listening to what I'm saying. And uh, it's like you're interrupting each other, you're disputing points, you're misinterpreting, right? That's one of the problems of communication that we have, especially in a time of conflict. And in the end, you don't feel like you have been heard. Have you ever wondered what it would, have, what it would be like to kind of have that power or if somebody else had that power and to kind of say, boop, you can't speak anymore, <laughs> right? That would be amazing, right? Then you could just like, hey, all right, you can't speak anymore. Let me, let me get my point. And the other person, they're in a position where they just have to be in that place of, I, I just need to listen, I guess. Right? I can't say anything. I can't, I can't do anything. I can't communicate. I can't uh, dispute my point. So you have here Zechariah. He hears what the angel has to say. And then because of his unbelief, he doesn't believe what the angel is going to say. The angel says, you will not speak for, let's say, about nine months. 
And I wonder what kind of thoughts would have filled his mind during that time where he's not able to speak. I imagine when you can't speak and you're just kind of in listening mode all the time, I imagine that's actually where he maybe heard God's voice the most clearly. Why would I say this? Well, because you know what happens right after John the Baptist is born? It says at the end of chapter 1 that he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he speaks a word of prophecy. And in that prophecy, what he says, he declares, God has raised up a horn of salvation for Israel and that this child will be called the prophet of the Most High. He's talking about John the Baptist here, right? And according to this prophecy, here's what John the Baptist's task would be. It would be this, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's John's prophecy. After nine months of silence, that is what comes out of his mouth. I'm sorry, that's Zechariah's prophecy. Why do joy and gladness come to not just the, you think joy and gladness would come to uh, the parents because they've been praying for a son, right? But it says joy and gladness will come to many. Why? Because John has come to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. His ministry would be associated with repentance. That's, if you're uh, so, you know, somewhat familiar with the Bible, if you've grown up in church, you've heard these stories, that's what John the Baptist is known for. He's known for preaching a message of repentance. And that's what verse 16 says when the angel says, John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a turning towards God. It's not simply this bad feeling. It's not a simply a feeling of guilt. Uh, it's not even simply just changing behavior. Those are all outcomes. But at its core, repentance is to say this, I am going to turn towards God. I am going to turn away from sin and turn towards God. It's a, it's a spiritual direction or disposition. Now, so much I think of spiritual life is about direction. I, I once heard this talk by a, a New Testament scholar and uh, he, I thought he gave this great image about what it's like to, um, to wrestle and to live in a world filled with sin and to have sin even present in our hearts. And he says this, it's a little bit like standing in a river that is flowing downstream. And the point that he was trying to make is this, there is no such thing as uh, being neutral. You cannot be in a neutral position because one of the things that sin wants to do is continually push you downstream. So if you are idle, if you are complacent, if you are just standing still, you're going you're gonna to just keep moving downstream. That's our default mode. And what it means to repent is when you, you're basically turning towards God and in spite of the water going downstream, your direction is to go towards Him. It's a striving to turn and to return to the Lord God over and over and over again. But what's the obstacles to repentance for us in particular, I think? Complacency? Apathy? Isn't it true? We struggle with complacency as Christians. If you are somebody who is a believer, you've been baptized, you belong to a church, maybe you think, well, I'm doing the minimum, right, duties of what it means to be a Christian, but it's possible that inwardly your hearts are completely far away from God. 
inwardly you don't have a passion for the things of God. Sometimes life circumstances is what makes us apathetic. Life gets full. Life gets busy. We have all these other priorities that fill our lives. Sometimes our uh, emotional capacity is full to give ourselves over to spiritual passions. Sometimes it's so hard to pray when I feel tired. Sometimes it's so hard to pray when I feel discouraged. Sometimes it's so hard to pray when it seems like nobody around me cares about spiritual things as well. And then you kind of get complacent and you kind of get apathetic. And what is that? You're standing in a river and the river's flowing downstream. And you may not realize it because it's not like you're actively backsliding, but you find yourself moving further and further and further away from God. Now I mention this because it's not a unique struggle. I imagine the children of Israel had the same kind of struggles. In fact, when John's preaching, they say to themselves, they say things like this, well, we have Abraham as our father. You know what that means? You know what they're saying? They're saying, look, it's good enough that I am a descendant from Abraham. I'm a, I'm a child of the promise. They had their own troubles as well. They've been through a lot as a people. You know, during that uh, intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you know, the Jewish people went through a lot of uh, horrible things. Uh, Jewish people during this time, they celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah is remembering something that takes place in these two books, uh, First and Second Maccabees, um, where uh, this evil ruler, Antiochus, does some horrible things to the people of Israel, right? And so they've been through a lot as a people. They're discouraged as a people. And that probably explains why they need someone like John the Baptist to say, get ready, salvation's coming. Get out of your complacency, get out of your apathy, repent, because salvation is coming. John the Baptist has to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in order for them to even be ready and prepared for the coming of Jesus, for the arrival of the Christmas holiday. <laughs> and you know, uh, I you gotta love the prophets. The prophets are the people who give the harsh word, right? The prophets are the people that uh, you would say, oh, that, that's a crazy person, right? John's in the wilderness. He's a lonely voice in the wilderness. Nobody knows him. Nobody understands him. And then all of a sudden, he's yelling at people, and he's saying, you brood of vipers, right? <laughs> Repent, right? Repent. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You see, when, when people are spiritually lethargic and going downstream, sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need that wake-up call. Why? So that we are ready for that which is most important. So we are ready to receive the coming of Jesus Christ, the advent of Jesus. Now, um, you, know, you know why I, I don't love, yeah, I love preaching the word. You know why I don't love preaching Christmas messages though? Uh, it's just like really hard. You know, Christmas comes every year and to kind of come up with like a new Christmas message every year is like so hard. And the Bible is so full of the, like all these wonderful things. And, uh, you know, honestly, I, I am not like a very festive person. So I love the theological meaning behind Christmas, but all the other stuff I don't really care for. <laughs> uh, my wife loves it though. So, um, you know, I comply and we have Christmas trees and we send out Christmas cards and things like that. Uh, but to me, uh, I guess the Christmas holiday is like, you know, just like another day. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really uh, get excited about gifts and, uh, and things like that. Uh, so I'm trying not to be a, a Scrooge, but 
if you, if you really, really want to get to the core meaning of what this Advent season means, and you know, all that festive stuff is actually good. I'm not against that. Um, but if you want to cut through all like the, the holiday stuff that has nothing to do with Christianity, <laughs> you know what Advent season is saying? Get ready. Be prepared for the coming of our Lord Jesus. You know, Advent means coming, and there was a first coming when Jesus came in the incarnation in Christmas. But we as a people, we're also waiting, are we not, for the second coming of Jesus, where he will come and bring resurrection, where new creation will uh, finally be consummated and made whole, where there will be no more sin, where there will be no more death, where the promises of the gospel will be made to completion. We, we are waiting as well for a second advent. And I imagine just like the first advent, although it's different now because we've had Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit, we are in a much different place, as John the Baptist himself would say, that the least in the kingdom of God is better than me, right? Uh, we are in a different era, but still, we have to prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? I, I don't know if it's actually very different. Um, we have to repent. We have to be a people of repentance. Now, when I was uh, growing up and someone said repent, and I think some of you still think this, right? You probably still think about it in the sense of like how John the Baptist is preaching it. You brood of vipers, repent. I don't know if he sounded like that, but. Uh, and you kind of think of it as like, oh, right, you put your head down, oh, I feel bad. When I was in college, I remember the speaker came and he was like, you know, uh, we're in a new age of salvation and Jesus Christ has come and the Holy Spirit has come and God's invitation is not repent or you'll be condemned, but because there is now salvation in Christ, uh, God's invitation of repentance uh, is a reflection of his kindness, reflection of his grace, reflection of his goodness. Our greatest good, what is best for us is actually to be in a place of repentance and continually turning to the Lord. So he said this, when you hear repentance, don't think repent, but think repent, right? I still remember that. He said, repent. There is a voice I think that we need to hear from time to time. There is a prophetic voice that we need to hear from time to time. Uh, you know, oh man, in this day and age, so easy to fall asleep, right? To be complacent, to be apathetic. I think I feel it in our church, and I think in our church, what would probably benefit us is to uh, maybe focus a little bit up on repentance. And by the way, repentance also prepares a way for revival historically, and I think theologically. Repentance prepares a way for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So if we want a, uh, you know, these are New, you are New Yorkers, you want action items, right? One of the action items we can take as we think about the Holy Spirit is to repent to turn to the Lord, to wake up from our slumber if we are indeed asleep, to wake up from complacent and apathetic hearts, to see the world not from uh, worldly eyes, to see people from fleshly eyes, to see people as obstacles in our way, to see people as crowding the trains, to see people as in our way when we're trying to cross the street, right? all those things that we think, but to see people, hey, these are people that God loves. These are people that God wants them to come to him, to repent and to turn to him, to know the joy 
and the gladness that comes in salvation. I think that's something that John the Baptist and his ministry uh, teaches us, although there's differences as well, because as I said, we have Christ and the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the great invitations, I think, comes from the Old Testament from the prophet Hosea, Hosea 6. And here's what it says. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the, sh- as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. I think that's an invitation that applies to us as well. Let us press on to know the Lord. We can't be standing still in this river, <laughs> but we always have to be in a place of repentance, turning to the Lord, and when we turn back the other way, to return to the Lord and to move towards him. Uh, because if anything is true, if this prophetic word is true, he will shower us with life-giving spring rains. You know what rain does to a barren land? It makes it fruitful, right? He will shower us with spring rains and fill us with the joy and gladness that we all long for. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and uh, lead us in song. But maybe we can practice that. Maybe we can pray a little bit and pray prayers of repentance. Advent season is not about getting your Christmas cards ready, although I'm not against that. Just <laughs> Let's make this Advent season about being ready for uh, the return of the Lord, that we wait in faith, that we don't wait with hopelessness, that we don't wait with apathy, that we don't wait with distraction, but we wait with a sense of anticipation for what God is able to do and going to do based on his faithfulness and his character.